So, interesting night I had last night. Mm. Yeah. Which is typically the start of some bawdy or, or hilarious anecdote, but it's sincere. I had a very fun, interesting night last night. Um, I went to um, meet with a group called Leeds Queer Wrestling. Yes. Um, which was very nice. Uh, there's a group out in Leeds, and I mean, it is what it says on the tin. It yeah, is. I mean, I'm I'm glad it went well because those are three words that sound very applicable for you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, queer wrestling is very important to me. So um, it was really nice to see to see that. Well, um, we all know Leeds is your your favorite municipality. In the whole of the kingdom. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I don't mind it, actually, because that is where I get recognised the most. Because oh, cool. it is there you very go. gay. It is very it's, gay. It's got the right mix of, like, big, gay, and not too far away. Yes, very much like me. I am big, gay, <laughs> and not too far away. Um, that is on my dating profile. I don't have one. Um, yeah, I did... I did crush Phoenix's face. Mm. Oh no! Uh, yeah, and not 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 in the fun, like not with my huge tits, um, mm-hmm. which I've been led to uh, believe is um, quite a good time. No, um, there is a move in wrestling called the crossbody. A crossbody is very straightforward. You run at the opponent, you jump. You sort of turn sideways as you jump so that your body is basically forming a cross with theirs. They're stood up. You are at a, um, you know, 180 degree, I suppose, angle from standing. Uh, And the idea is you smash into them and press them down on the mat. Um, Straightforward. Um, the, the the Leeds Queer Wrestling is, is focused predominantly on just, like, very casual um, learning some basics and that. So it is a, a considered a fairly basic move that I don't do for reasons, uh, mostly being. Um, in fact, there was a lot of picking people up for stuff at this particular mm. session. And I was there just to sort of, I wanted to check out the venue. Uh, where they're at because it seems like it'll be perfect for when we pick up Spectrum Wrestling again, the promotion that Fee and I run. Um, It does look like it uh, because we are planning to run in Leeds and the venue looks good. So I was there for that. Uh, I did bring my gear because whenever there's anything wrestling related as a wrestler, uh, it is a habit to to bring my gear anywhere. Um, I was invited to join in, so I masked up and... um, had a go. There was a lot I couldn't do because there was a lot of inexperienced folks and a lot of them were a lot smaller than me. A lot yeah. smaller. So you gotta work with what's safe with who with who you got. Exactly. So I did some picking up, um, very little uh being picked up and and doing like things like crossbodies myself. Cause a big important part of the move is um the hand placement of the person taking it has to be able mm. to hold them to some degree. Um, because I'm quite mighty 
Uh, I'm actually quite good at taking crossbodies. Um, for instance, last night, um, one of the uh, um, larger people ran at me, didn't quite get a bunch of height, but as I hooked them, I was able to lift them up into position before essentially throwing myself back. Um, quite good at it. Phoenix is fearless and has wrought iron legs. Yes, I I know these things to be true. Yeah, and they're they're just doing some training stuff uh, because they've taken on the role of Commander Sterling's manager, um, and basically, you know, as a ring announcer as well for Spectrum and that. It always behooves one to have some experience with bumping, like knowing how to land in the ring. So they've been doing a little yeah. bit of that. Um, you know, nothing yeah, major. It's... It wouldn't be unexpected for someone who isn't technically a wrestler in a moment to, you know, take a take a hit or two. Absolutely. That's happened in wrestling. Yeah, when I was a manager, I, I learned how to bump. Um, it's just a good thing to do. Sophie wanted to do that, so they've been doing that. Um, they are an incredible bumper, um, possibly because of that, actually very much because of that fearlessness. They got no problem um, hurling themselves into the mat. Um and they can carry me on their back, like mm. legit, because their legs are like s- fucking pneumatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F- Phoenix, Phoenix has like power loader legs. Yes, um, like you stepped into the armor and suddenly, like, oh, your your legs are doing like triple triple output. <laughs> and as a result, I performed my first crossbody. Now, the thing about me is I'm more agile than I look, Mm. as evidenced by the spinning wheel kick that I do, um, some of the flips I do that I haven't, like, done very often, um, but, like, that that rather famous clip of me being hypnotised into wrestling myself, doing that um, essentially Bruce Campbell flip that I did... um, I can be deceptive to the point where I can be surprised. Um, for example, there's a clip of me doing the wheel kick where I got so high, I actually got the guy with my left foot, not the foot I was actually, like, kicking with. Um, it had to, on, a bit on the descent, had to get him with the left. So, they, being about a foot shorter than I am, but expecting, as I did, that I would not jump so high that I would reach their head uh, was adjusted for someone not doing that. So that's how I did that. Sorry, Fee. I mean, look, Fee's, Fee's sturdy. If anyone was going to take that well, you know, oh, no, Fee's like, got it in in, in in seriousness, <laughs> they... Um, yeah, they took it right. Basically, in a room full of beginners, where aside from the person teaching it, uh, Rich T, who I'm actually uh, wrestling on Thursday in London, with the exception of them, I was the veteran. I was the wrestler wrestler, the one who is, you know, an actual professional wrestler. And kind of... Like, you know, I was there and I was like, you know, I could I could big dick it here. Um, just kind of look all pro and cool. And then I squashed my husband's head. 
In fairness, being incredibly agile. Yeah, I mean, all you do is you, you you know, if you're the expert in the room, you play it off confidently. This was definitely like me showing off a new move type you've not seen. It's a variation on on the move, you know. Maybe maybe you should all be incorporating it into your move sets. Exactly, and I should say as well that like, despite the fact that Fee is um, sort of training very basic stuff for the manager role, um, it was a move they knew how to take. Like, I I just want to like point out I was oh, not. Yeah. Getting someone who didn't know the positioning and had exactly. experience with it. There's a reason you're doing it, you're doing it with Fee and not with yeah. anyone else in the room. Um, and they had a go and got me. And, and they look adorable when they do a crossbody. Because like, as, they, as they jump, their hands are out like a flying squirrel. <laughs> it's fucking adorable. Um, and they got me and uh, I'm quite proud of it because as I caught them... I threw myself like a couple foot backwards and it looked fucking awesome and it looked like they bodied me. Um, so there's that. Also on Saturday, I was in uh, sunny Huddersfield um, with a promotion that I reached out to last year and they wouldn't book me. They said, we don't get it. We do serious wrestling that looks like proper real and is treated like a sport. We don't even have a ring announcer. Um, and I, I was told they were under new management and I went to see it. Simon Miller was there. Always good to see him. Uh, Mm -hmm. it was a fun show. Um, and I was like, maybe I could schmooze and instead got incredibly drunk with the promoter who has labyrinth tattoos. Um, so I got on really well with them. We became really good friends and then, I was talking to someone else about the whole Scott Garland thing, the guy who wouldn't wrestle me and accused me of libel and tried to ruin my career. And she said, that's awful. Um, are you free on this date? So scored a booking there. So that that is my little stuff I've been up to. Uh, well, just gearing up now for my London trip. Um, excited about that. Yeah. Well, here's, here's very quickly how my weekend went. Sure. I did a trip to Norway that was only 24 hours from like leaving the country to getting back to the country. I do not recommend that is a very tiring way to do a trip somewhere. And the main takeaway I have from that trip, despite meeting, I met some lovely people, had a lovely time. At 6am in an airport, being very tired and my flight was delayed and I just wanted to go home and I needed something to pass the time. I used one of those like pay a couple quid massage chairs in the airport. Oh. And I don't. I've never used one of those before. No, they've always been an alluring if, mystery to me. I don't know if this is normal for these kind of things, but I paid the money and I sat down, and the first thing that happened is it clamped my fucking legs in place. Oh, and I was like, like in hostel, a little bit, yeah. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then it started ma- its 15-minute massage cycle, and here's the thing. They clearly clamped my legs in place because this was far more of a deep tissue massage than I was anticipating. And they did not want me just leaning out the chair. They were like, no, you're in here now. It went well, but I wasn't ready to be like clamped into... We're going to buff the, 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 the knots out of your soul with this chair. I wasn't... That's not what I was anticipating right before getting on a flight. No. no. Uh, <laughs> well, did it at least offer you a happy ending? I mean, um, some of those massage 
uh, nodules in the chair were getting real fucking close to my arsehole. <laughs> um, like, just being just being open about it. Like, they weren't just along the back Apparently of the chair. Apparently it was trying were... to get you open about no. it. Yeah, uh, there was some on, like, the seat, the... the the seat portion of the chair, and they were really just like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna massage your ass." Nope, nope, we're gonna massage it further apart, further apart. Like, oh, oh, get to Ooh. get to know me first. Okay. <laughs> um, so that happened, and then I got on a plane and came home and did a. I'd been up since two a.m. and then came home and did a full work day. I'm Fucking feeling hell. great today. Hell yeah! Nice, uh, brilliant. Uh, welcome to Conrad, have you no, crushed any nothing. faces or no. been buggered by a chair in an no. airport? No, I, uh, I had an elderly man compliment my haircut. Oh, at the no. supermarket yesterday. That was odd. And, and then he said, "I just got one too," but he was wearing a hat, so I like <laughs> couldn't. He wouldn't show it though. Yeah, like he I wasn't able to comment on it. Fantastic. Uh, just, just. Just take my word for it. I also have nice hair. Yeah, I, I, I just yeah. should have just treated the hat like it was his hair. Like, <laughs> fucking hell, the embroidery they got on that hair is very yeah. impressive. Remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, welcome to Podquisition. We mm-hmm. we got we got stuff to talk about today. Um, I'm I'm gonna jump right in because you know it's 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 rare that I have games about trains to talk about, and I'm I'm talking about Choo Choo Survivors again today. Yeah, the full game's out now, and um. I mean, there are improvements since the demo, but like, I'll you know, let, I'll get into it. So we talked about this game a couple weeks ago, Choo Choo Survivors. It is a vampire survivors game, but you're a train. And I talked at the time about the fact that like, while the premise had promise, and I am enjoying it as someone that enjoys the novelty of yeah, but it's a train. My concerns were like, is there going to be enough long term like content in this to feel like there is stuff for me to do other than just replay the stuff I've already done? And I, there is definitely been an attempt to have other things to do in there that were not in the demo. Um, most notably, when I last played this, the objective, uh, rather than survive for X amount of time, was simply get your train to the end of the linear track it's on. And there is now a a more difficult secondary objective on each stage, uh, which is... Ah, okay. So there's lots of different ways that you can set up your weapon to attack. You can have it uh, randomly fire, nearest enemy, radius, whatever. One of the things I never really used originally was aim at specific enemies by pointing your cursor at them. Didn't really see much need for it. There's a bit more of a need for it now that kind of pertains to the secondary objective, which is... Along the track, there will be buildings with people that need safely making it onto your train. And being able to direct your weapons in a specific direction means you can clear a path for them to get to your train without them running out of health. If you get enough of them, 85% of the way down the track, there is a bunker. Uh, You can staff that with with people and put weapons in the bunker so the the bunker starts auto-firing. And you are given an option to... Uh, either wait around for the half-hour mark or skip ahead to the half-hour mark and have a secondary objective for trying to complete the level, which is stay in one place near this bunker and there's going to be about five minutes of very difficult waves of enemies coming at you. If you can survive, that is a different victory condition that, you know, other stuff will be tied to. And that is definitely more difficult because 
you can't do the vampire survivors thing of like walk around in little circles. You can now go backwards on the track a little bit, which is helpful. But um, the big thing that is challenging about it is you can't go forward and backwards on the track means you're not getting these little pallets of here's some health, here's some fuel for the engine, here's some extra, um, you know, uh, crates for getting extra unlocks and stuff. You are very much tied to, is your build sufficient to keep you alive? Which is interesting in a game like this because there is so much less um, uh, synergism going on and a lot less, far fewer options of weapons. Like you have, these are like the three weapons your your train you've selected can pick from in rotation. And like you can have more than one of a certain weapon, but like this is your little pool and they don't, strictly synergize with each other. Um, you can unlock other things later that are like permanent upgrades, things like the ability to call in airstrikes and things like that, and those do help, but it is... It's an interesting move for a game that doesn't let you have that same degree of, I'm going to build the the overpower, overpowered ridiculous build I discovered through play. Um, like, I appreciate that it's there, Right now, it feels a little at odds with the rest of the game's design and, like, the game... It feels like they put this in due to criticism of um, the linearity of the levels without really thinking about the things they would need to add to this game's design to make that secondary objective feel like something you earn victory in. Because right now, it feels like the way to win that secondary objective is do a bunch of regular runs to get a bunch of permanent upgrades so that your build is just strong enough to do that. The game does seem to only have the three stages uh, that was sort of hinted by the demo, and while there are some visual uh, some visual differences in terms of like theming and enemy visuals, there's not really anything different mechanically other than difficulty about the three stages. They are all, here is a linear track, there is a finish line, and at 85% there is a bunker. And that's kind of disappointing. Like, I'd talked about the fact that, like, I was hoping maybe you might see splits in the track in later levels and, like, using your cursor to click on a thing to switch which track you're going to go down. Like, I can think of a lot of ways you could make a game that is Vampire Survivors about trains more interesting and more complex by just thinking about what do trains do? Because, like... There's things about this that I like that almost get to that 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 sort of thought. The having to rescue people from buildings and like clear a path so they can get onto your train and give you a little damage boost. That almost thematically feels like pulling into a train station and having to like quick quick get on the train before the zombies get in. They could have done more with theming of that because right now it's stop your train next to a random building for someone to get in and like it feels like this wasn't necessarily a game developed with someone that like it wasn't made with an autistic trained obsessive in the room to go like here's some cool shit you can do with the idea of trains here's how you make it yeah. train good and that is a shame but it's two quid something like two quid and i feel like having spent this morning playing around with this much how i thought i would play in the demo which is there is definitely more to do in the in the full game, and for two quid, this will be in my rotation of survivors games that I will have a good time with, um, 
you know, I'll I'll occasionally be in the mood for and I'll play it and like I've been obsessively playing this all morning and I'm going to keep doing turb until I have that list of all the unlocks done probably and then, you know, put it down and every now and then go, yeah, I could do a couple runs of that. But it's never going to be in that rotation of like default ones that I jump to. And like, I'm really enjoying it, but I know how much of that is me just going, there's a train there. And I can't recommend this game necessarily unless either you are someone who really likes survivors games and just enjoys the idea of look maybe i only get a day out of this one and then it goes in the rotation that i'll come back to some point or if you fucking love trains those are the two camps where maybe this will be for you and like for two quid you're not you're gonna lose too much out if like as as we've said before vampire survivors is like a real skews your perspective on value for money yeah. that this genre can do and again like stuff like bone razor minions perpetuates this idea of like this is the value for money proposition that a good game in this genre can do and i'm trying to put that thought aside a bit and go outside of survivors games how often do i get a full day's worth of i played this game all day and had a good time with it out of a two quid game not often even if today is the only day that I spend, like, going through the main, unlocking all the stuff, and then, I'm d like, that's it. And there isn't, you know, a uh, roadmap of updates or whatever beyond that. I got my money's worth out of it, for sure. So, yeah, that's how I'm feeling about Choo Choo Survivor mm -hmm. so far. I, uh... While you were talking, um... I had it on the Steam Deck and was giving mm. it a little go as you were talking about it. Obviously, I literally was playing it. Yeah just for that period, because I'd only just gotten it downloaded. Um, plus, uh, it's not got any controller support, so it's a little bit fiddly. The only thing I would suggest for a st uh, Steam controller, really, uh, for Steam Deck, really simple, just map uh, left trigger to be spacebar, and then you use left trigger to move forward. Right. I did apply one of the basic templates that the Steam Deck has. Um, yeah. So I do have Accelerate on the right trigger. I would like menu man navigation to be like with button presses because using the mouse for that's a hassle. I would prefer if there was proper controller integration, but like left left trigger for spacebar and everything else on mouse hasn't been yeah. a problem it's workable. for me. Yeah. yeah, my first run was going well, then two jumpy things appeared and just smashed oh, me yeah. in seconds. But it's uh, it's looking interesting. Yeah, I'll say this: it, those early runs were more frustrating when you only had forward as a direction. Um, the, the yeah, you might want to map uh to your other trigger. I think it's right click is the default for reverse. So if you map right click to your other trigger, yeah, the um controls have the the left trigger like using the the basic ah, yeah, yeah. template well, that, that works all right then yeah yeah having the option to be able to back away from stuff like that does help because originally you just had to power through and hope your build was going to carry you through it but right. yeah i can see that being awful yeah it's interesting i'm definitely glad i picked it up and i'm enjoying it but you know with bone razor minions or vampire survivors you're like look for most people i think you will get like you will have a great time like you get money worth out of it easily this isn't nearly as universal a recommendation yeah but yeah, there is a very specific flow to this yeah and it, it takes some it takes some getting used to like how it wants to be played also it doesn't explain its own mechanics well um i didn't realize during the first couple of runs 
uh, when I was playing the demo that you had to mouse over experience to pick it up. Or you had to mouse over pallets of, like, pickups to pick them up. Yeah, I did pick that up after I, uh, well, failed to pick a lot of things up. Yeah, which ain't gonna help with the uh, the, the balance curve no. it's got. It sort of jumps in without really telling you what to do. And th- it's a shame, because there is a fun game in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea is clever. It's just they uh, they gave themselves a challenge when they decided we're going to put this on a train track. Look, developers, if you're listening, like 100% my biggest recommendation is make another level, but this one you can click on the thing to change which track you're going to go down. Doesn't have to change much thematically, but make it feel like I have some degree of path selection. Mm-hmm. Done. Recommend done. Yeah. Um, what about you, Conrad? What you played this week? Well, I, I pulled out uh, Pikmin 3 because I'm Ooh. very excited about Pikmin 4 coming yeah. out next month. Understandably. Yeah, and I have a Wii U. It's actually sitting on my desk right now mm. because I had fully intended to get around to modding it and checking out the Wii U library because I just, I missed it somehow. I, I bought the console, but it came at a time when I wasn't really doing as much uh, game, like, coverage yeah and and it wasn't that exciting in terms of the the software releases as it was happening there seemed to be a lot more going on elsewhere and so i just i missed it but i'm pretty sure pikmin 3 is like one of the only games that is on the drive of this wii u that i have sitting here and i just haven't hooked it up to check i'm fairly convinced because i fucking love this series it's also one of the only switch exclusives developed by nintendo that still hasn't been ported to switch well, no, Pikmin... It's one of the few remaining holdouts. Or is it Pikmin on... 3, Pikmin 3, in fact, because this is the version I played, they put out a Pikmin 3 Deluxe, I think, back in 2020. Oh, you're right. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. then they just... I think, of this, I think of this so much as a Wii U game, I didn't even think it was on Switch. Well, and, then, and they added co-op to the uh, single player mm. in that, and I think there's some a few other bells and whistles. Hey, whistles, that's a Pikmin joke. Um, yeah. And they, Well, they just dropped... Pikmin 1 and 2 for Switch. Um, yeah, I downloaded yeah. those, but I uh, haven't got around to playing them yeah. yet. I had my moment when they announced 1 and 2 where I was like, why aren't they just pointing 3 as well? They already fucking they did it. They already did it, yeah. And it is fucking great. What a charming, delightful experience. I, I, I love the Pikmin series generally, and... This is one that just sort of, like, it doesn't make any dramatic changes outside of the squad mechanic that it introduces, where you can have, um, you know, up to three different groups of Pikmin being controlled by different characters you can switch between. But it's still just more of the same. And I fucking love that, that it can sort of recommit to all of the things it does it says you know, we know these mechanics are good. We know this gameplay is good, and we're confident in our level design, and we're just going to do that some more. Yeah, um, that's, that's why I'm kind of excited for what I've seen at Pikmin 4, because it seems like it's like, hey, look, we know our core thing works. You couldn't go out at night before. You can do that now. It's mm-hmm. like those kind of things where it's like, those things that you've probably wanted to do, wondered, oh, what would it be like to do? But otherwise, we're just going to give you Pikmin again. And I'm like... Yeah, I'm okay with that being what that series is. And 
the levels are so just meticulous in their construction and the way that they all loop back and you can always find a way that's easier to navigate back to your home point. The The best feature of this, of Pikmin 3, is the uh, go here command. Mm. That your selected character, you can bring up the map and put a spot on the map that they can go to and they just go there without your needing to deal with anything. And the idea behind this is, you know, you can be sending somebody else to a location and not have to manage them while you deal with some other activity with a different squad elsewhere. And that's that's well and good, and it's great and fine. Not, like, super necessary a lot of the time. It's I really just use it to send someone back to go pick up more Pikmin if I've lost a few. But... The thing it's great for is not having to do the navigation yourself. (laughs) When you are just needing to get back to where that boss fight was, and you don't want to like, okay, so what's the route for it? You just go press the button over the spot where they go, and your group just goes, and you can sit and just watch and enjoy them traveling there. And I love that, because as someone who will make a wrong turn or get lost and then be frustrated that I'm not where I want to be and have to bring up the map again and figure out where I am based. No, I don't do any of that. I press a button and they go there. It's wonderful. It's, it's like the smartest application of the kind of strategy gameplay mechanics that I've seen just sort of plucked from something else and put into another game where it never even occurred to me that it would be so fucking useful. And there it is. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, like, I hadn't put this together until the way you just described it. It's really similar to when you're playing, like, a Dynasty Warriors or a Warriors game, and it's the just, yeah, just get the fuck over there. I'll, I'll, like, swap to you once you're where you need to be, but, like, I don't want to think about that. I'll just hop over there in a second. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, really, such really a nice good little game. quality of life. I'm, I'm, so I'm pumped. Uh, and nice compact experience. Like I actually finished the game. Yeah. I, I played the whole thing. It, it, it took me, uh, I think, twenty four, twenty five days of in game time. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I played it over the. I think days are like fifteen minutes, and some of those you end a little prematurely because you know you've got nothing else to do. I got two thirds of the fruit in the game in that time like and i think it took me all told eight hours my god an eight hour game that's just that's nice those were the dice right oh so anyway that's that's pikmin you should play pikmin it does emulate pretty well on the switch version um using the emulator i used to play it (laughs) um Crashed a few times, but that's to be expected. On the whole, really worked well. Uh, go play Pikmin 3 Deluxe. It, it, it'll, it'll just melt your heart and, uh, and, and get you ready for uh, a week or two from now when Pikmin 4 leaks. Steph, <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you been playing this week? Uh, I've only really had time. For Final Fantasy 16, um, yeah. so I'm trying to plow through it for a review. 
I've been playing a bit of it. I've been traveling a, a fucking bunch this week, so I've not had a lot of time with it, but I've had enough time to appreciate some of your points from the generation <laughs> this week. <laughs> yeah, so I uh my my video this week was about some of the world building and storytelling <laughs> in Final Fantasy 16 such that it is where everyone every npc almost um from the soldiers to people just selling some fish is a gleeful palm rubbing like cackling gleeful bigot and while nothing it represents in nothing it presents in the game is unbelievable even you well, know the nobleman like sending the the bearers the magic people uh, off to be killed by a wolf um, so i would say there is one thing that's unbelievable and the thing that is unbelievable is that the literal magic wielding well, protagonist would be such a fucking doormat in the face of serial killer level mustache twirling bigotry evil. yes Yes, this that's, is a... That's where the suspension of disbelief is. People are that evil. If I can literally make fucking balls of fire come out of my hand, there is no world in which that man mustache twirls away to do more evil. Well, okay, so now, I, I, while I agree with you that that is ridiculous, um, Final Fantasy is a series that is prone to presenting things in more ex extremely dramatic terms, right? I would posit that perhaps what they were trying to attempt to do is demonstrate how the the cultural repression of these people can be so internalized by them as to just be doormats. And now the I, problem it, with that is Clive has no problem as a known fugitive taking down entire garrisons of soldiers. <laughs> And he won't chat back to a fishmonger. So it's a little and, dissonance. And it, that's where it yeah. turns round to become unbelievable again. And, yeah. and like I said in the video, which, which Laura pointed out, um, it is unbelievable that Clive is such a doormat because at once it is presenting you the same power fantasy that these games mm. present while selectively making Clive a doormat, and that's the problem. That's where it becomes unbelievable. Yeah. I was thinking while I was playing this about another piece of media that I think pulls a similar idea off in like a one-episode story a lot better, and that is the original Avatar The Last Airbender, which has a episode a little ways in about people who can do earthbending, like uh, stuff from the ground they can magically manipulate, and the way that they are sort of subjugated into slavery is that they are put to work on a metallic barge out in the middle of the ocean where they do not have access to the material that they can magically control. And that is used as a way to, like, mentally make them feel like there is no ability to fight back before they are put to work using those magical skills. Like, there is a progression of we are going to make it feel like escape is futile and there is nothing you can do about it, shown and demonstrated that leads to they're working in situations where they have access to coal. If they stopped and thought about it, they might go, 
oh shit, maybe we can magically manipulate that. Maybe that's close enough to our skill set. But they don't think about it because they were broken down first. Like, that's a 20 minute story that does a great job of explaining why a magic user with access to what they need to do magic might not consider the fact that they are in a position to overthrow the power structure that has oppressed them. This comes across like it, like, I hate to bring this piece of media up, but it feels like fucking Harry Potter in places with the house elves, who are magic-wielding little elves who just never fucking consider that they could just not be slaves. It's got this vibe, Final Fantasy sixteen. It feels in places like the people who have access to literal, like, elemental magic have just not even thought of the fact that they could maybe use it to... To, you know, protect themselves from being murdered or whatever. That, that, mm, there is no groundwork to make that feel believable. There's another problematic element to that, which <sighs> mm. um, Phoenix brought up when we were talking about it, um, yeah. like just between ourselves. A big problem with that isn't even how unbelievable it is that magic wielders who could take out scores of the non-magic wielders aren't mm -hmm. fighting back. Um, that makes it, like, worse in a way. But what mm. the real issue is, this system of slavery has apparently existed for centuries. And yes. in all of this extensive lore, in this in-game wiki, never is a previous slave rebellion mentioned outside yes. of what Sid's doing. And the, and the harmful yeah. thing about that is it ignores the fact that no matter how broken down people are, no matter how much they've been raised to believe they should be slaves or what have you, throughout human history, every slave people have rebelled more than once. They have fought, and often they've been put down, but they have fought and fought and fought. And the idea that every single powerful magic user is completely uh, unable to fight back, that's a harmful message and maybe even like you've got you've played further than me so correct me yes. if this comes up later but i've not seen so much as the suggestion that a single slave in this game ever just snapped or responded in panic or responded in self-defense like not even talking about like organized rebellion that there is not so much as a whiff of one individual panicked and threw a fireball in someone's face it is uh, to date no yeah. You know, you might occasionally see someone who will do something in real time, like there is the example in the Jinquisition this week of the guy who is not your playable protagonist maybe setting a wolf on two people who've been serial killing people. That guy like, isn't even a bearer either. He doesn't have the mark. But that's the thing, is he's not a bearer. Like, you will see harm inflicted upon people who've done evil and recognition that those acts are evil and that maybe the right thing to do is to you know murder those people to stop more murder happening but never from the enslaved no Just fucking never from the, the enslaved. slaves in this game are existing predominantly as a plot point with no agency and they are treated in the most generic bargain basement understanding of of slavery and oppression, um, where they're viewed purely as victims. I have not seen, and I've been doing all the side quests along the way, and I've 
to my mind, I cannot recall an instance where any of the bearers have bitten back in any way. Uh, it has fallen on Sid, a dominant who is uh, in a privileged position, former Lord Commander of an army, who has been doing all the organising. Uh, a guy called Gav, who's a scout, who is not a bearer. Uh, another dominant, the guy who, who orchestrated the thing with the wolf also, uh, not a bearer. You do see a nobleman at one point who is smuggling food to the bearers. And there's Clive, a basic borderline prince from nobility uh, who was sold by his evil mum into slavery but still has that privileged background and of course he comes from the kingdom that is presented as heroic because they treated their slaves nicely quote unquote one of those fucking stereotypes basically the only people helping the slaves are not them which wallpapers over how much like like you know slavery in america the lesson that should be taught there but is often glossed over is nobody helped them break free well certainly no one did it as much as them they did it and the thing that keeps coming back to me with how this experience has been in its opening hours for me those comments that naoki yoshida made about not having people of color in this game really feels like it is no accident that if you had had a racially diverse cast, what would probably have come across in this game is this vibe of white saviour comes in to tell slaves, hey, maybe you don't want to be slaves. Oh shit, we hadn't thought about that, Clive, our white saviour. Like, it could very easily have gone that fucking way. But that's exactly what they did. I mean, that and is... And that is kind of what they're yeah. doing, but they're trying to, like, not... Let race be an I mean, element. Assumed... It's the same trope. Well, they've established a minority class. They've taken somebody from the power-holding class and brought them in yeah. to inspire the revolution. Uh, it's, yeah, that's what they did. It's the same trope in different clothes, absolutely. And yes. I think, especially when it comes to the fact that Square Enix made the very express decision that everyone is white, and it is a decision. It's a fantasy yes. world they made up. And often when developers do this, they like try and find any reason to uh, obfuscate responsibility. It's like, it's just the way the world works. Or they try and blame it on like, oh, well, medieval history was all homogenous. It's, no, no, it it's not. Yeah. That's bullshit. But again, as, as Fee and I were talking about it yesterday, another point they hit upon was so much of this comes off as tourism mm -hmm. as trauma tourism yes where they only ever go with the most extreme level of oppression the most extreme presentation uh that you can have so everyone is a mustache twirling villain so you're essentially on a theme park ride which again yeah it's it's it comes off like tourism it's, like you're just it's never on the, the 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 lane of like plausible deniability you never see the example of like the person who refuses to serve you in a shop and, as as you pointed out in the Inquisition this week, like, comes up with the shitty example, like, uh, the, the medieval Europe was all white people. No one is like, I'm refusing to serve you bearer because of some reason that's definitely not your mark you have on your face. Yeah. And, and, like, the, the person would be able to see through, but you can't prove. You never see shit like that. Mm -hmm. um... Well, it's, it's interesting, because what you describe 
it feels like they are trying to make a critique of capitalism, just broadly speaking, based on how you've described it in the video and here, and and how this society absolutely could not function in any way that the people who are in power cannot do anything and are entirely reliant on this underclass that they have created. The problem comes in, well, I mean, the problems come in with using slavery, the problems come in with having um, encapsulation of all minorities as a one sector. That Plus, economics don't come into it. The poorest villagers are just as dependent. I'm not saying within yeah. the economic strata of this yeah. majority society. I mean, in yeah. general speaking, the majority society represents imperial nations. Like, we all, even the poorest of us in the United States and in Great Britain, are still benefiting from the existence of slavery outside of the imperial court, right? Yeah, like sure. Our lives, even economically the lowest of us, their quality of life exists on the basis, what quality of life they have exists on the basis of the labor that we are exploiting. I think you're correct. But the thing is, again, it's hard to tell that story while also giving every one of those exploited people the power le fantasy level magical ability to, you know, if they practice, wipe out fucking armies. It's also, you know, it's minority status. And, and as I say, you know, sort of lumping all metaphorical minorities into this one class with great power. Because in a sense, all of us that are the minority in an economic power sense and under the structures of our, our systems that we have developed... We are all of a greater power than the people who control us, right? That metaphor ostensibly works, but then when you boil it down into just this one class, it becomes very, very squicky, and it doesn't quite work. I, I can see where they might have been trying to go with it, because they aren't subtle. They're never subtle. And this is not a, a subtle way to do it. I want to... Speak a little about the like we've been talking about the lack of subtlety, mm -hmm. mm. and I want to because I was discussing this on the Trash Palace Discord. I, on a personal level, have a real problem with media that focuses solely on the extreme examples of mm. abuse and oppression to the exclusion of the the more subtle, the more insidious. And mm. content warning, this ain't going to be very detailed, but, you know, content warning for discussion of abuse. To draw from my personal life, you know, I've been open about the fact that I've essentially, you know, been in various abusive domestic situations from early childhood to my mid-30s. And I have struggled with some of those situations to not only accept that I was being abused but even know it because it wasn't all beatings and screamings and I think when you have media overall almost universally focus on the most extreme forms of abuse you really undermine what the portrayal of what abuse is 
and the terrifying ways in which it is diverse and versatile and it's not all that extreme to the point of of near cartoon level villainy Uh, I mean the scary thing is is some of it is but in one of my relationships where I did not know I was not being hit I was being emotionally psychologically financially abused And it wasn't until they told me what they'd done. After, you know, I I left them and they had processed a lot of, like, shit they were going through. And they went back over some uh, written correspondence we'd had. And they went, holy shit, and realised on their own what they'd been doing with, with the gaslighting and the... The, the, the mental abuse, and reached out to me. I had no idea until they told me because I was not in a situation. It was not like on TV. It was not like in video games. It was traumatising all the same. But even now, even today, I sometimes feel guilty for feeling like I was abused. I feel guilty for the PTSD I have from my childhood because a lot of it was not physical. Like, there was some fucked up shit, but Mm. it was not the pop-culturally recognised abuse, the media-approved version. Mm. And I think that can be really harmful and it's not the responsibility of any single piece of media to explore that but I personally have a real problem with any piece of media that takes abuse and oppression and focuses on the extremity of it to such an extreme that like as 16 does Every single character and every NPC is so abusive and there's no exploration of of the insidiousness uh, and the creeping concessions and, and all the other things that go into it. And I would very quickly sort of add on to this. Uh, and again, as you say, it's no one piece of media's responsibility to tackle these kind of things if that's not what they're aiming for. But also when you delve into these kind of topics you invite criticism of how you have handled oh, yeah. them. Yeah. Um, when, generally speaking, about the idea of pieces of media representing the oppression of a class of people as these acts of overt cartoon villain level evil, it makes it really easy for real world people who are engaging in targeted bigotry to deny that's what they're doing. Yes. And we we are seeing a lot of this right now with the anti-trans lot, who are basically pointing to cartoon-level depictions of bigotry and going, we're not transphobic, we're not going out in the streets and, you know, hitting trans people with bats and doing whatever, you know, whatever exaggerated cartoon-level villainy thing. We're just insert insidious little thing we're not transphobic and people eat it up because they have been trained by media to only really see 
bigotry in its most extreme forms as what gets portrayed. And anything less than, like, trans people have been talking for a while about, you know, the definitions of the stages of genocide as, you know, defined by various groups and where trans people might fit on those kind of scales. Yeah. Oh, I have such trouble arguing that with people. The response that people will always give is, yeah, but you're not being rounded up into camps and shot yeah. yet, so it's not a genocide. And yeah. it's like, all of the nuance out of those kind of conversations goes away, because if you only see depictions of bigotry, depictions of genocide, depictions of whatever as their most extreme endpoints, you don't see the insidious that builds to them and learn to recognise it when it happens to others. Yeah. Like, I've had to adjust my language a bit when talking uh, outside of trans circles, like adding qualifiers to try and help that, like cultural genocide, um, when talking about the the eradication of, of culture and things like Section 28, uh, legislative genocide. I mean, it is all genocide, but just to try and, like, ease people's thinking into the idea that it is not all one, like, it's not all jackboots and camps. And I think this is a great sort of lead-in to what Final Fantasy sixteen does to, as you, like, point out, help uh, bigotry. Uh, because I mentioned earlier that Clive comes from the royal family of a kingdom that is presented as the most heroic of the kingdoms because it treated its slaves well. And... Mm. What is one of the most common rhetorics you see from the right wing who try and justify slavery? The first person I ever saw do this was Davis Orini, uh, who was featured heavily in very early um, H-Bomber Guy videos. Mm. Well, slaves, slave owners often treated them very well. That comes up so often and... When that is used as a trope, uh, I've not played Final Fantasy XIV, but I believe it's a trope there as well. You're just making the same argument. You're making the argument. Clive owns some. That's pointed out in in a, yeah. a, a yeah. relatively early mission. He owns some. And again, as as we say, it's not one piece of, a piece of media's job to address all these things necessarily, and this is not a problem exclusive to Final Fantasy XVI and its depiction of people existing under systems of oppression, but I would argue this is an incredibly prominent and incredibly ham-fisted example of how poorly this can go when done wrong. Yeah. Like, it is a very good example of a persistent trope in media hitting its apex. Yeah. And it's it's such a problem in video games where I think a lot of developers want to say things but don't quite know what they want to say. And they start, like, dipping their toes in waters that they don't know how to swim in. And we have a real problem, as I pointed out in the video, with a lack of nuance in storytelling in mainstream games. And I think one of the biggest things, and I've, I've pointed it out many times before, and I know you have, Laura, as well, is... This industry desperately needs more consultants. It oh, God, desperately yeah. needs more people from marginalised groups. It needs more people with first-hand expertise, with qualifications. It needs to pay them, and it needs to listen. Yeah, I can't get into a huge amount of detail other than to say 
I've done consulting work for companies and sometimes all they fucking need is someone to point at a thing they've done and gone, have you considered that the group you're making an allegory about might perceive X like Y? Yeah. And like sometimes that's all they need is just someone to go, can you see how if you think that through in today's world, it kind of seems like you're saying blank? Yeah, because they don't think, because they've never had to think. That's I, I wonder how many devs have actually heard of sensitivity readers. Anyway, we've we've got a you know we've got other. Stuff I didn't to talk actually about talk with. about the game. <laughs> I was gonna say it's a bloody fun game to play when it's played. Yeah, I mean, I I I would like it if there were more weapons because yeah. after like dozens of hours, just the sword with the few techniques Clive has. Like I'm in this sort of very familiar pattern of you know. Yeah. Slash, slash, fireball, slash, slash, uh, lunge at them, do the little punisher finisher, and fire off the abilities as and when available. And there's some tactical use of the abilities, especially when it comes to the enemies with stagger meters, when best to use them. But they are very much drip-fed, those abilities, and they're really awkward to use. Mm. There needs to be a wheel. There always needs to be a wheel. Games need more wheels. Like flicking through them like you're turning a book page like it's a little awkward but combat has gotten a little unexciting it can still be pretty satisfying Mm. but considering weapons are all swords that, that do the same thing and there's a crafting system but it's just everything's on a very linear upgrade path it's just get the armor it ups your defense and it ups your health and just keep getting the next one along the linear track that's drip fed as the plot continues same with the swords like arrow go up Mm. there's just not a lot to it they put a lot of thought into the magic the abilities and it shows and they're really good like they're great the abilities big fan uh but the actual like the fundamental sword play underneath it while it can still be satisfying has, after a very long time, gotten very predictable. Mm. But it is a very... It is fundamentally, like, like structurally, in terms of its combat, <laughs> quite good. Nice. Uh, Conrad, have you played anything else this week? I have. I played something else that came out this past week. Ooh. Yeah. Dr. Fetus's Mean Meat Machine came out i saw that on the store i was like what yeah um is this would this be the dr fetus from like Ed mcmillan yep the super stuff. meat boy mm-hmm. yeah. yeah team meat is credited in this and tommy Refinis did work on it but uh edmund doesn't seem to have been involved on this one it's pretty remarkable i have to say as you might guess from the name, for those familiar, it is a very specific reference to Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine, which was itself the uh, Western version of Puyo Puyo that we got on the, the Genesis and Mega Drive. It's interesting because what it sort of made me reflect on a little bit as I was playing Dr. Fetus is back in those days, we would have called Mean Bean Machine a puzzle game, right? 
Hmm. Yeah. But that's not really what it was. And over time, we have adopted different language, and we would refer to it as a match four today. But back then, they were all just puzzle yeah. games, right? I, that's never hit me that that shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like, I've heard, you know, match three, match four, like match games. They've always still just been puzzle games to me because I'm old. Right. Yeah, huh. Mean Meat Machine is a puzzle game that uses the mechanics of Puyo Puyo and mm. the aesthetic and uh mechanical sensibilities of Super Meat Boy to make one game. Interesting. It draws very heavily from both and in almost equal proportion. So it plays like Puyo Puyo. You have four different colors of meaty creatures that Dr. Fetus is manipulating. Um, They come down in pairs. And when you can match four of them of a same color, they disappear from the board and everything above them falls down. Where the meat boy of it all comes in is the stages are designed with hazards built in. And these are saw blades. Um, That's mostly what I've seen at this point is saw blades. Some of them move. Some of them are stationary. Uh, Oh, there there could also be like little barrier blocks sometimes. So now you have to work around these obstructions. And for the ones that move, you can pile up your little meat guys, but a blade could come through and just delete them. They'll just get wiped off, and now you no longer have them there to work with. So that chain you were setting up, or that combo of four that you were struggling to get rid of, you might continue to struggle to get with it, because as you're adding lines, they're getting taken away before you can eliminate them with a match. As you eliminate groupings of the meat creatures by matching them, it fills up a meter, and when the meter fills up, you checkpoint... And the stage will shift in some way. New hazards might get introduced. Existing hazards might change their behavior in some way. And now you have to contend with this new reality. There are a couple of ways in which you can manipulate in that the, the, you wouldn't get normally in a Puyo Puyo type game. You can slow pieces down in addition to speeding them up, which is helpful for avoiding some of the moving obstructions and things like that. Um, and... When you get a chain of multiple exploding meat creatures, it will stop the action for a brief period of time, giving you a bit of breathing room to pile up a new chain or to eliminate some more blocks before the hazards begin moving around again. Eventually, you will clear enough creatures to cross all of the checkpoints, fill the meter up however many times it needs you to do it, and you move on to the next discrete stage. Here's the kicker. This is the thing that is the most meat boy of it all. If the piece you are moving gets hit by a fatal thing, you die instantly and have to go back to your last checkpoint at the beginning of the stage. That's harsh. It's every bit as devious and cruel as Super Meat Boy, while still always giving you that sense of, this is possible, I can do this, I just have to figure the way. It's it's remarkable. I, I've completed the first world of it, I think there's 
five or six, 20 stages in each, each ends with a boss. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by how well they've managed to synthesize these two very, very different games and, and make it work. Really. And, and some just delightful jaunty music in there as well. I, I, I love this. I love this game. And I was a big, I was a big mean bean machine player. Um, back in my heyday, mm-hmm. I had a, a roommate once who thought they were shit, um, and talked a big, big game. <laughs> and I sat down and just obliterated them, put the controller down, and walked out of the room without a word. And we never spoke of it again. <laughs> I loved Mean Being Machine, and this is. <laughs> This just feels so good. It feels so good to play. Um, I would, if, if you like Puyo Puyo, if you like Super Meat Boy, you owe it to yourself to try this. They have a demo. Play this game. Neat. Any other games we want to talk about this week? Or should we, with the little bit of time we got left, uh, dig into some of those newsy bits? Yeah, I'm all good. Just been playing more Street Fighter Six. Fucking love it. That's about it. Well, in that case, we've got some fucking bits of news this week that have kicked off because mm. uh, the FTC's uh, um, hearings into the uh, attempted Microsoft acquisition of Activision Blizzard King have been going on this week, and we have been getting like. I don't know if these are actually interesting to like whether this you know uh, uh, acquisition goes ahead or not. But we are getting some of the most inside baseball look at how these developers operate and talk when no one's looking that we have maybe ever had. And it is genuinely fascinating some of the stuff that's coming out of this from a I'm interested in the industry perspective. So we'll we'll start with like some of the obvious stuff. Um, before the hearing started, Microsoft said one of their, their things they were going to look into was Microsoft's decision to keep Bethesda's games exclusive was powerful evidence that they would do the same with Activision Blizzard. And seemingly, maybe some staff at Bethesda might agree with that, or might feel similarly. The headline I saw on Eurogamer for this was, uh, Microsoft's pledge to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation sparked concern at Bethesda, emails show. And this is specifically uh, Bethesda's marketing executive, Pete Hines, uh, emailed bosses, including Todd Howard, when the news of the uh, Activision Blizzard purchase was doing the rounds, to note that that was, in in Pete Hines' own words, the opposite of what Bethesda itself had just been asked or told to do with its own games. This was an email from October 2nd last year. Pete Hines expressed concerns that Bethesda would be publicly questioned on why games like Starfield and uh, Starfield are Xbox only, following Microsoft's acquisition of them, as opposed to things like Call of Duty, supposedly not. And I think that's reasonable. I think if you've been acquired by Microsoft and told to make exclusives and only exclusives, you might go, are we are we going to look like the villains if you can suddenly make things multi-platform for Activision Blizzard, but you're not going to let us be multi-platform? You're not Call of Duty. Um, yeah, like I'm. I'm sorry, yeah. you're not Call of Duty. You know, you you get you get Elder Scrolls Six out. We'll talk, but yeah. So of a note, Bethesda didn't get any heads up about this, and Pete Hines was not happy. Quoting an email, did anyone at Xbox think about giving us a heads up on this? 
You don't think a journo might find Todd at dice and press him on why the below is okay for Call of Duty and Activision games, but not for us in any future interview he does. Yeah. Fun note there, we do now have some insight about um, uh, Starfield's exclusivity on Xbox, and it's an interesting one. Apparently a big part of why Microsoft purchased Zenimax and therefore Bethesda was that they heard Sony was going to pay for, like, a single-game use case exclusivity to make Starfield a PS5 exclusive. And Xbox went, no, not having that. And then immediately bought it, turned around, and made it a... Yes, so apparently a big factor in them acquiring ZeniMax was going, no, you're not going to make Starfield a fucking PlayStation exclusive. We're going to have that as an exclusive. Amazing. Right... Right, um, let me let me find the specifics here. Uh, I'm reading from VG247. Xbox head Phil Spencer said one of the main reasons Microsoft bought ZeniMax was because of potential Starfield exclusivity. Now, he's trying to bring this up to be like, uh, evil Sony, they keep buying exclusives. Uh, we heard they were going to do it again, so we had to protect ourselves. Without acknowledging that, like... Look, I don't love it when a console manufacturer pays for a, a game that would have been multi-platform to only be on their thing. But that's not the same as we bought the company so we can make all of their games for forever exclusive if we want. They're two different beasts. Microsoft believed it needed to own Bethesda to stand up to the competition. They thought they couldn't remain viable unless they bought exclusivity from under Sony. Oh, we've not even started digging in. There's so much weird shit that's come out of this FTC stuff. Here's a fun one. This is a 2019 email that has surfaced as part of this. Um, Microsoft executive Matt Booty, which again, great surname, um, wanted Microsoft to spend Sony out of the console business. This is from a 2019 email to Tim Stewart at Xbox. We, Microsoft, are in a very unique position to be able to go and spend Sony out of business in reference to planned spending of 2 to $3 billion in 2020 to avoid competitors getting ahead. The emails also go on to talk about how Microsoft is in a position where it would be practically impossible for anyone to start a new video game streaming service at scale at this point. Oh, um, ooh, and ooh, which, is, which is not good for them, yikes. right? That's not good for them. So he starts talking about in this email the other competitors that were coming up in 2020 that could have stood up to Xbox's game streaming options. Ooh. Google's about three or four years away from being able to have a studio set up and running. Amazon has shown no ability to execute on game content. Content is the one moat that we have in terms of catalogue that runs on current devices and capability to create new. Sony is really the only other player who could compete with Game Pass, and we have a two-year and ten million sub Well, I bet the CMA is feeling pretty fucking good about themselves today. Right? Yeah. So, like, look, Microsoft um, has responded to this, and their response is weak as shit. Um, this email is three and a half years old and predates the announcement of our Activision Blizzard acquisition by 25 months. Oh, so it refers so, so in the time when you might have been thinking about ways that you could, you know, cement your position as a monopoly, as opposed yes. to when you actually started executing that plan. Am I understanding? Yeah. Fucking asshole. Right. Uh, and they follow that up with... Uh, we were referring to industry trends that we never pursued, and is unrelated to the acquisition of Activision Blizzard. 
fucking no. That, no, that might made it that very... might very well be true because again, what they want is king. Yeah. And I bet they're really pissed off that this Call of Duty shit is getting in the way of their acquiring king. Well, see, funny you mentioned that. Uh, I didn't put it in the topic list, but let me scroll back. I know I've got it here somewhere. I think it's... Uh, let me grab it. Um, Microsoft uh, attempted to purchase Zynga prior to the Activision oh, Blizzard deal. Oh, really? Yeah. You don't say. Yeah, fun that. Huh. Yeah. Um, you know, known for Farmville, Zynga Poker, etc., Microsoft wanted bigger mobile games to help break into that market, and that was one of the things they were looking at doing, and now they're going for Activision Blizzard King that arguably have a bigger foothold in that 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 industry. They have words with friends. That's that's the one. I was like yeah. I was like, they've got they you're like Farmville's okay, but we're old, and that's no, that's something it's, it's words with friends. My mom plays that every day. Oh yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah. So you know how we talked previously about the fact that like Microsoft has been really putting themselves down to try and like skirt through this acquisition. Sure. Uh, the latest way they they've done that as part of these FTC hearings is to claim that they have already lost the console wars. <laughs> um, specifically using the phrase "lost the console wars" in uh, their court filing. Um, so part of the heavily redacted court filing was was made available and. You know, they're continuing to try and paint themselves as the underdog. Um, Xbox's console has consistently ranked third of three behind PlayStation in sales. Um, it trails with 21% of console revenues and shares of consoles currently in use by gamers. Xbox has lost the console wars, and its rivals are petition a position to continue to dominate, including by leveraging exclusive content. Xbox has consistently ranked third in consoles behind PlayStation and Nintendo. This is the first time they've acknowledged Nintendo as a competitor. They are resistant to do that. They are... They f It feels desperate. They're like, no, 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 Nintendo is a competitor again now, and they're winning, and we're, lo we can't, we're losing to them too. That is interesting, because Microsoft right? is always... And Sony, they've always been so focused on each other. And I've made the argument, like, over the years, that Nintendo, especially because it often doesn't behave the same way as many... Um, huge corporations uh, does exist in its own bubble. Mm -hmm. Now, on some level, it competes, of course. Sure. But in terms of head-to-head -head competition, Nintendo does tend to stay out. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I tend to look at... I've, I've always maintained that Sony and Microsoft, they're game console manufacturers, and Nintendo's a toy maker. And that's not to, like, oh, diminish yeah. or, or speak. It's a different craft that they're performing. Nintendo feels the same way from, from all we know. So, yeah, that is that is the first real acknowledgement we've seen of, like, Xbox actually bringing Nintendo into the conversation. And I think it's only because if they want their, their market share to look smaller, they can say it's 21% if they include Nintendo which they don't usually like to do because then it's like, oh, we don't have 50% of the market. We only have 21%. Cause they, they need to make it seem like Sony is dominating them and that helps them in that regard. It makes the numbers look different. Uh, we know a few other interesting things, including we have yet more evidence that um, Microsoft has been actively cancelling PlayStation versions of games when they acquire studios. PlayStation versions of games that were in development that were told, put that on the fucking chock and block when not making shit for PlayStation. Which, again, 
does not look great for Microsoft at this moment. You could have just been competitive, collected licensing revenues, and avoided all of this. Right. So we know that uh, there's an upcoming Indiana Jones game being developed by Machine Games that was initially intended to have a PlayStation 5 release, but following Microsoft's acquisition of ZeniMax, these plans were scrapped. Pete Hines has also, like, tried to give weaselly excuses why Starfield isn't on PlayStation that definitely aren't, you know, we're trying to drive sales of Xbox. He didn't believe Starfield would hit its September release window if it was multi-platform. Yeah, might have had a release a little later if you were making two of them. That There probably would have been more work, I guess. Um... Yeah, but you've got so much money, you could completely crush PlayStation's console business. So, you know, you could throw that yeah. at the problem. That's not an issue. Yeah. Um, like, there's a contradiction in everything that they say. Yes. Anytime that Microsoft was asked during these hearings about games that they have in the works from studios they've purchased that haven't yet had their platforms explicitly stated, um, they're being very fucking cagey about whether there will be PlayStation versions or not. Outer Worlds 2 is an example that they were just like, the decision has not yet been made uh, as to platforms. You fucking know internally what you're making it for. You don't start development on a game not knowing what your target platforms are. That feels weaselly to try and argue. Um, What other bits were in this document? Microsoft expects the next generation of consoles to release in 2028, which, like, that fucking means nothing, but... It's a, yeah, that's just like, um, a num- you don't usually hear a number this far out. Interesting little tidbits that come out of this. A couple of other big ones, I'm just trying to find where they are on the list. Oh, so we've started having Sony and Microsoft in various directions start a little bit of a fight about next-gen games already. So if this deal goes ahead... Call of Duty will allegedly be coming to PlayStation, uh, Microsoft insists, and Microsoft would like Destiny available on Xbox. But both companies are going, nah, we can't tell the studios you own, uh, own you know, about our next-gen console in case you pass it up the chain and steal all our ideas. So I guess, I guess your studios just can't make games for our console because we're not going to tell you in advance what we're doing. This started with PlayStation boss Jim Ryan saying that Sony would no longer be able to share details of its, you know, upcoming console hardware with Activision if the the deal goes through. So, you know, Sony going, well, we'd love to have Call of Duty on PS6, but like we can't, we can't tell Activision what P- what PS6 is. How could we risk that? Which has started a bit of a back and forth, it seems, between the two companies of like, well, we we can't. We, we couldn't do that in reverse either. Which, again, it's just it's just much more public of a spat than you usually get to see in these kind of situations. Because I, I imagine, like, around games like Destiny, those conversations have had to happen, but you don't usually see it publicly as, nah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna let them work out how to make games for launch. Uh, and very last one that we'll, we'll very quickly touch on, other acquisitions Microsoft tried to make before this, uh, they tried to buy Sega, and they tried to buy Bungie, apparently. Again? And Supergiant. Yeah, uh, we have we have information that uh, they tried to buy Sega, and Bungie, and Supergiant are all acquisitions they tried to make before this one, so... Wait, they tried to re-buy Bungie? 
Yeah, yeah. We can we can talk about look. We can talk about that next week because we've got a bit of a time yeah, limit yeah. this week. Uh, but wow. we'll get back to that. They tried to buy back Bungie. Amazing. That was one of the things they tried to do this week. Anyway, let's wrap it up there. We, we're we're going to have so much more news on this. Fuck it. These are fucking FCTC hearings as the weeks go on. We did it. We did it. It's done. We did it. What else have you done, Laura? People do need to know. Come People on. People do need to know. You can find me at Laura K Buzz pretty much everywhere on the internet. Laura K Buzz on Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, YouTube, Patreon. That's the one that pays the bills. Just search Laura K Buzz. You'll find me in all the places. What about you, Conrad? You can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter and Instagram. You can hang out with me live on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thatconradzimmerman. You can get anti-capitalist propaganda and official Jimquisition merchandise at mercenarycreative.com. And everything I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? James Stephanie Sterling. That is true, patreon.com slash jimquisition, that supports this, that and the other. Uh, I stream when I can at twitch.tv slash jimsterling. Um, by the time this comes up, I will be getting ready for my London debut with Fist Club. Um, should be good. Uh, my next wrestling day after that is July 8th in York for True Grit Wrestling at True Grit Wrestle. Uh, then July 9th, I'm doing an evening with Commander Sterling at head bar in manchester um interesting proposition still um i may if we can get the crash mat out there i'll be giving out free choke slams um that'll do well august 26th as well is a huge one um so check that out and also july 30th in huddersfield i will be debuting with tidal wrestling um that's that uh we will see you next time thank you very much as always bye bye, bye.